Say thank you so much for what you shared. And please, if you can't do, come back tonight to our communion and story service and hear so much more uh, from Dorothea. If you can access the Bible again, please turn back to Revelation 13. And I wonder what you heard earlier. Or what struck you from and about that dramatic chapter? Was it the beasts, those two phantom menaces, as someone has described them? Was it the mark, the distinguishing mark of the beast? That's what struck you. Or was it that intriguing three-figure number, 666? Well, whatever else you remember, and whatever else you hear now in these next 20 minutes or so, my hope and prayer is that you will walk out of here today also struck by Jesus, by worship, by endurance, and by wisdom, that you will see Jesus afresh this morning, that you will value true worship, that you will commit or recommit to faithful endurance and you will leave here this morning seeking wisdom. It's been six weeks since chapter 12. And as we get back into Revelation after Advent, I do want to hit rewind for a moment and remind us of a few key things that we said right at the beginning as we set out on this journey together. And the first is that Revelation is ultimately about Jesus. The opening line in it I mean, chapter 1, verse 1 says the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so right up front, one of the reasons we give, one of the main reasons I give for reading Revelation is that we might know Christ better. And secondly, we're reading it to follow Christ better. Because remember, Revelation is a letter. It is one long letter, 22 chapters that is addressed to seven local churches in a specific place at a specific time, and it is written to them to encourage them, to comfort them, to educate them, to challenge them, and to inspire them. And so if you like, and this is something we've been saying, Revelation is a discipleship manual. It is to help Christians in their faith and it is to help them follow Jesus in their particular situation. And therefore, it can serve that purpose for us as well. Now, I realize Revelation is written differently from most other letters. It's weird. It's strange. It uses symbolism and imagery. It's an apocalyptic piece of literature, which most of us find unusual because we're not used to reading it. But it was written this way to help disciples of Jesus in the first century to be disciples of Jesus. It was written to instruct them to keep the faith, to remain loyal, and to realize, and this is something we've been saying, to realize things are not as they seem, or rather, things are not only as they seem. There's way more going on right now, and there's way more to come. And so as we venture back into this letter at about the halfway point, and for those who are visiting or have turned up today for the first time, I'm sorry. And I appreciate that jumping in halfway through this letter is really tricky. But as we return to the dragon, 
who remember is the devil, it's Satan, who at the end of chapter 12 has gone off to wage war on God's people. As we go into chapter 13, it now tells us how he goes about that and how he is going about that. But I hope that through it all and in it all, we will somehow bear in mind that this is about knowing Jesus and it's about following Jesus in the here and now and into the future because Jesus is coming again. And so, okay, let's explore this chapter 13. Unlucky for some. Sorry, Dorothy, thanks for laughing. <laughs> That's why I love you so much. So, in chapter 12, the dragon, the devil, Satan, had tried to kill Jesus. You know this. Revelation 12, verses 4 and 5, offer us a rather alternative and unsettling version of the Christmas story. The dragon shows up to devour Jesus at his birth, but he doesn't succeed. The dragon fails, according to that chapter, and so he goes after the people of God. He now goes after the disciples of Jesus Christ. He now goes after the rest of the woman's offspring, as they're described in chapter 12, but he doesn't go after them directly. He solicits the help of two other forces. The dragon wages war against the people of God through two powerful beasts, one from the sea and one from the earth. And so what you've got here, what you've got pictured here is a pretty twisted threesome. It's a kind of, and lots of people have drawn attention to this, it's a kind of fake trinity. There are aspects of the dragon and the two beasts that mimic the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which isn't surprising because evil always tries to masquerade. It always tries to pretend it's something it's not, which is why, actually, it has got so much success. So this sea beast, what or who is it? Because it has quite an impact and an influence. It is blasphemous. I'm just going to be tracking through the first 10 verses as I describe them. It's blasphemous. It's irreverent. It gets people's attention. It gets their allegiance. Worse still, this beast receives people's worship. And so verse 4 says things like, or where people say things like, who is like the beast? It's shocking, and it sounds a lot like what should be said of God. Exodus 15, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? But now people are saying, who is like the beast? And so the beast voices off proud and ungodly words according to verse 5, and he does this for 42 months, which is for those who've been following this series, that's 1,260 days, that's three and a half months, that's time times and half a time. That is the period these first century Christians are in. That is the period we 21st century Christians are in. It is the time between Jesus returning to heaven and Jesus returning from heaven. It's back then. It's right now. And the beast, it says, has been given power and it's been given authority to wage war against God's holy people. 
And so this beast cannot and clearly should not be underestimated or taken lightly or treated trivially. Incidentally, given power from who? From the dragon? Or ultimately from God? Let's move on to verse 8. To the critical defining issue of worship. Because apparently all inhabitants of the earth are going to worship this beast. Although there are, and thank God, there are major exceptions. Look at all of verse 8 with me. It says this, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. So, the people of God, true disciples of Jesus, true disciples of the Lamb, whose names have been written in heaven, and I hope to God that is many of us, they will not, they should not worship the beast, which is why even before we begin to unpack this further, which is why I said right at the beginning that whatever else we hear today, I want us to leave here valuing true worship. The true worship of the one true and living God, because those who don't worship the one true and living God will worship something else. They will worship something other than something ungodly. Everyone worships. The only choice we get, the only decision we make is what we worship. We as Christians worship God. Value that and do not get distracted. Do not let your worship become compromised. In this text, there's a fascinating insight. I don't know if you picked up on this as Lydia read it to us. There's a fascinating insight and aspect about the Lamb in verse 8. The Lamb we know is Jesus, but listen again to the end of that verse. This is in the NIV, I know. This is how the Lamb is described. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Sorry, what? When? Like, did the cross not happen way after the creation of the world. Now, I know that verse can be translated as follows, and if you have a version of the Bible in front of you that's not the NIV, I know a lot of you use the ESV, it reads like this, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, that's the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Don't let this confuse you. The point either way is this, and remember, God lives outside of time. The point is that Jesus has been and is the Lamb who was slain for the world, who was slain for us to take away our sin, to restore us to relationship with God. He has been that Lamb forever. He didn't just start being Savior and Lord in AD 33 couple of thousand years ago. He has been, he is, and he always will be Lord. And that is why he must increase and we must decrease. That is why we must follow him. That is why he is our only hope. That is why he is the light of the world. That is why we must deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow him daily. And so back to what I said at the start, in amongst everything else that's going on here this morning, may you walk out of this church with a refreshed vision of Jesus. He is the eternal lamb 
who has rescued us by his death, and he has written our names in his book of life. And that has been the reality from the beginning of the world, before the foundation of the world, in fact. Now, some of you, you know, are sitting there, and I've been kind of tracking through the description of beast, and some of you are losing the will and losing the plot because you're thinking, uh, David, the beast, what or who is it? So one of the things that we have been saying all along is that in order to get revelation or to get a better better handle on revelation, you've got to know the Old Testament. In fact, lots of aspects of revelation have already appeared in Scripture and do already appear in Scripture. There's very little new in a sense. It's just packaged differently. Well, that's definitely the case here, because as John shares what he saw, and remember the question we keep asking, it's not what happened next, it's what did John see next. So, what John shares that he saw of this beast in Revelation 13, 1 and 2, you immediately are reminded, or you should be taken to Daniel 7. And the first readers of this letter would have gone there. We're in a dream, Daniel sees four beasts coming up out of the sea. The first beast is like a lion. The second is like a bear. The third is like a leopard. And the fourth is terrifying and dreadful. And as Daniel's dream unfolds, it becomes clear that the four beasts represent four human kingdoms, four hostile empires, all of which reject God. Now check how John describes this beast from the sea in Revelation 13. It's like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like Alliance. So is John implying that this sea beast is the dreadful fourth, or better yet, is he implying that all four beasts are now rolled up into this one beast? The four human kingdoms in Daniel were most likely a reference to Babylon, Persia, Mede, and Greece. They were a particular expression of the sea beasts that he dreamt about. And therefore, this particular beast that John saw represents any and all human kingdoms, empire states that have rejected God and who operate in a way that threaten, that suppress, that undermine, that damage the ways of God and the people of God. And you see, for those reading this letter first time round, and remember this was a letter written to a specific people at a specific time. For those reading this letter first time round, the beast was easily identified. It was manifested in Rome a hostile empire at that time that was thoroughly anti-God. It persecuted Christians. It had killed Jesus. It was rife with idolatry and greed. Right? It entertained, it promoted all kinds of godless values and practices. It had an emperor at the time, Domitian, who wanted to be worshipped as Lord and God. And on and on we could go. Before Rome, the beast was manifested in Assyria and Babylon. And ever since, the beast has shown up in subtle and not so subtle ways in different human states and kingdoms and empires which reject God, which promote different gods, which trample truth, which manipulate, which oppress, which persecute, which devalue, and sometimes even seek to steal, kill, and destroy. It's a really interesting aspect to this beast. 
because in verse 3 it seems that one of its heads has been mortally wounded and yet it's been healed. Well, if something's been mortally wounded and healed, it means it has kind of come back to life in some way. And surely there's a sense here, is there not, that whenever one anti-God human kingdom falls or dies out, there's always another one to take its place and rise up again until the kingdom of our world has finally and fully become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and then he will reign forever. So where, what's the best today? How does it rack up in our world in 2023? Well, in certain countries, those in power actively and intently seek to eradicate Christianity and persecute and even kill Christians. In other countries, those in authority have thoroughly rejected God and His character, thoroughly rejected God's ways, God's values. And so, for example, to worship Jesus publicly, to hold to His truth is being challenged, it's being compromised at every single level. And therefore, the beast flexes his muscles and seeks to influence human kingdoms of this world. And he has success even to the point where in some situations, many people who worship the state Many people live lives that reflect the values and the ways of human kingdoms and empires. The dragon is active via the beast of the sea. Satan is at his work through human political powers and kingdoms that reject or remove God from the center of their existence and their expression of leadership and control. And back to the original context that this was written into, the Christians reading this letter for the very first time, they were under extreme pressure to conform. The beast flexed. Extreme pressure to conform. They were being hassled for following Jesus. Some of them were even dying for their faith at the hands of the Roman Empire. And so in verse 9, there is this phrase, there is this refrain that sounds very similar to the one we heard seven times in chapters 2 and 3. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Because you see, John wants his readers, his first readers, to pay attention to what he's saying here about this beast, about the reality of human kingdoms and political institutions, which in their case, as verse 10 goes on to explain, they're taking Christians captives. They're not even just taking Christians captives. They're killing some of them. And John doesn't want his readers to be uninformed or unprepared for the challenges they face in following Jesus in their world. And throughout the New Testament, time and time again, the writers make it clear that opposition and hardship and trials are to be expected for us as Christians living in our world today. Jesus actually said to expect it. And so we need to pin our ears back. And we need to listen to this discipleship manual because the beast is real. And he's influential. He's active. So what do we do? What does John say to these guys to do? What should be our response? What is the need? End of verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Hang in there, guys. Stick with it. Persevere. Remain faithful. This world, the institutions of this world, the kingdoms of this world, they'll try to dilute your worship. Every single day they're trying to compromise your values. 
They're trying to get you to conform to their ways. And the pressure is going to get more and more intense. And the temptations will be fierce. And the challenge is acute and severe. Some of you might even get killed. But you've been warned. You've been made aware of it. If anyone has an ear, let them hear. Don't be seduced. Don't be overcome. Don't sell out to the beast. Instead, passionately, faithfully stand your ground, church. Again, back to the beginning, my third hope for today. First is to see Jesus afresh. Second is to value worship. Third is that you would be encouraged this morning. You would be reminded to remain faithful. Stay faithful. So what about the second beast? It's 11.38. How are we doing? Are we okay to stick? Will we keep going? Yeah. So from verse 11, he's the one that comes from the earth. He is the one who, and again, I'm just tracking the text. He is the one who looks like a lamb, so he mimics Jesus. Speaks like a dragon, kind of like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Heard that before. It's the one who exercises authority on behalf of the first beast, who it's its propagandist. It's the one who performs signs and wonders. It causes fire to fall from heaven, mimics God. It's the one who makes some kind of image of the first beast and then kills those who don't worship the image of the first beast. It's the one who puts a mark, puts a seal on his people, again, mimicking the lamb who we know marks and seals the people of God with the Holy Spirit. There's so many, if you like, religious overtones associated with a second beast, and therefore it's kind of playing God or trying to be God, but in a totally messed up, wrong, blasphemous way. And the interesting thing about this beast is that as you read on in the rest of this letter, and I know many of you have read on and you know what I'm going to say next, but in chapters 16 and 19 and 20, this beast, this particular second beast, is called and referred to as false prophet. Here's Revelation 16, 13, for example. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, first beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, second beast. Revelation 19, 20, but the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf, second beast. Whenever Jesus spoke about the last days in Matthew 24 and in Luke 13, and remember, these are the last days right now. Whenever Jesus spoke about the last days, he talked about false prophets who would appear doing signs and wonders. And so this second beast, therefore, represents messed up religion, false religion, false prophets that might look or seem on the surface like they're the real deal, but in reality they are not, and they're wrecking people's lives. And false religion and false prophets are doing exactly that today. Remember, for example, it wasn't just the Roman authorities, that particular human kingdom that killed Jesus. The religious crowd at the time were complicit in his arrest, torture, and murder. Human kingdoms, political institutions, and the state can become an enemy of discipleship, but so can religion, dragon-manipulated religion, this beast. And so we need to be aware of that, and we need to be on our guard against it. It's how the enemy wages war against the people of God. 
through false prophets, false religion, deception. But what about the mark or the sign of the beast on people's right hands or foreheads? Now, I know there have been all kinds of suggestions as to what those are, what those will be. But again, we need to check in with all of Scripture. So let me offer you one perspective. Back in Deuteronomy 6, we read this. Fix these words, oh, back there. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. That's these words of God. That's these ways of God. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. On your head to influence your thinking and your behavior, on your hands to influence your, what you do, your actions, your behavior. Or sorry, your thinking and belief in the head, your actions and behavior in your hands. The mark of the second beast is wrong thinking and wrong belief. Wrong thinking and unbelief. And it is also wrong activity and behavior. And the enemy of every human soul longs for people's lives to be marked like that. To be marked by unbelief and wrong thinking. To be marked by wrong behavior and action. And so what's the advice in this letter? Regarding the second beast, verse 18 this calls for wisdom. Two read it to us. The first readers of this letter needed it. We desperately needed it. We need it. Because to be aware of and to deal and with to defend this beast or against this beast, to be on our guard against all false religion and false prophets and deceptions requires God-given fear of the Lord type wisdom. And if you sense you lack it, if you're fallen prey to the influence of this beast from the earth, then will you please ask God for wisdom? And do it quickly, because so many people are being deceived today. It's 11.44. And we still haven't got to the number. So what about 666? We've just one more song to go when I finish here in a second, don't worry. And what about the rest of that last verse that has aroused so much speculation, maybe more so than in any other or many other verses in Revelation? Well, there are a number of takes on it. For example, there was a system in practice at that time and in that culture and in that context, and some of you know this, called gematria which used Hebrew and Greek letters of the alphabet as numbers, and therefore it was possible to add up the numerical value of a word or of a name. And apparently, when the Greek word for beast is transliterated into Hebrew, the numerical value of that particular name in numbers is 666. Or when the Greek version of Nero's full name is transliterated into Hebrew, it also totals 666, which is what led some people to associate him with the number of the beast. This particular interpretation gathers even more momentum because if you've got an ESV version of the Bible, I don't know how many of you have, if you have a look at this with me and you will have picked up on this if you do have, but there is a footnote beside the very last verse and beside 666 in your Bibles. And down at the bottom of the page, it will say, some manuscripts read 616. 
And if the letters in Nero's name is transliterated from Latin into Hebrew, this time the number is 616. Now, lots of that is fascinating, but it assumes an awful lot. It assumes, for example, that those who read this letter first time around would be able to go from Latin to Greek to Hebrew. And in the process, mess around with lots of letters and be selective in what are people's full names and titles. And therefore, I'm not so sure any of that's helpful. And all along, we've been making the point that when it comes to numbers in Revelation, you've got to be so very, very careful because more often than not, and please hear me on this, more often than not, they are symbols to consider rather than codes to break. And so what might be the symbolism of this number? Well, at the most basic level of biblical symbolism, if seven represents perfection, six signifies imperfection. If seven is the number of completion, then six falls one short and therefore can only be thought of as a number of incompletion. And why are there three sixes? Well, again, in biblical symbolism, three think Trinity is also a number of completeness. And therefore, three sixes, the number six, 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 implies that the beast is completely incomplete. I said earlier that the dragon and the two beasts make up some kind of counterfeit Trinity. And as we know and as we have seen, they want to be God. They want to be God-like. They mimic the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but they can't be. They will always fall short. They will always be imperfect and incomplete. And so this number is not about identifying the beast. It's about characterizing the beast. Because false religion, deception, and false prophets are totally incomplete and imperfect, and they always will be. So back to what I said at the start, that whatever else you've heard today, whatever else you take away, I pray that you will see, if we're going to have the last slide there of Mario, I pray that you will see Jesus afresh, the lamb who was slain for you from the creation of the world, that you will value worship. Why? because your name is written in heaven. That you will faithfully endure no matter what pressure you come under from human kingdoms, from political powers, or from hostile empires, no matter what you come under from the beast, number one. And you will be wise in the face of deception from false religion and false prophets from beast number two who is out to deceive you. May God help us. We're going to close. Uh, thanks. I apologize for going a bit over time. We're going to close uh, by singing Oceans. Haven't sang it in a long time. Uh, so please stand together and let's put our trust where it should be.